Daily Drive is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Find out what Reynolds is up to in the digital retailing space by visiting reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. I'm Jason Stein, publisher of Automotive News, and this is Daily Drive for Tuesday, June 8th. What is the legacy of Carlos Ghosn? How will history remember such an influential figure, one who dominated the automotive landscape and helped direct three brands at one time, an executive who was larger than life with a boatload of charisma and seemingly control of every lever inside Renault, Nissan, and Mitsubishi, until he didn't? What now for Carlos Ghosn? How will he be remembered? In the soon-to-be-released book Collision Course, Carlos Ghosn and the Culture Wars that Upended an Auto Empire, Automotive News Asia Editor and Tokyo Bureau Chief Hans Greimel and his co-author William Sposato explore all dimensions of the Ghosn affair, the personalities, the dynamics, the situation going forward with Ghosn. The book will be published later this month, but today, in the second part of a two-part Daily Drive episode, we talk to Hans about Ghosn's legacy. I started by asking Hans Greimel about his personal dealings with Ghosn in writing the book and what Ghosn told him. Well, when you talk to Ghosn these days, after his escape to Lebanon and his uh, his new life there, he is laser-focused on trying to um, re- rejuvenate his um, his reputation, resuscitate his, his image. And that is really what's driving him these days. He's surrounded, he's uh, buried in, in lawsuits around the world, in Japan, in Europe, in the U.S. He's uh, civil suits uh, all over the place. And of course, he has a criminal suit trailing him in Japan. He's He'll always have this asterisk next to his name as being the the you know the world class renowned uh, CEO who uh, was indicted four times, uh, escaped Japan, and uh, now lives as an international fugitive on Interpol's uh, you know red list in Lebanon. So he is uh, high very focused on that being his legacy and what he can do to improve upon that. And um, it's an uphill battle. He admits it, that it's going to be a difficult um, a task to kind of resuscitate his, his image, but um, that's what he's focused on. In the early part of his escape or immediately following his escape, when he hosted the press conference, in Lebanon, uh, which you attended, um, he had a almost a hyper sense of getting the facts straight more than anything else. Um, it was you, you and I discussed it at the time during a previous uh, daily drive, and and it was kind of this. He was he wanted to be judge and jury and and prosecutor and defendant all at the same time. Has that tone changed? Is Carlos Ghosn different? today than he was back at the, in the room that you uh, sat in for the press conference? I don't think so. I think he's still, um, he has so much to say. He has so much pent up uh, frustration and, um, and anger at the J- Japanese system. Um, 
and he feels so much indignant—he's indi- 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 so indignant about the way he was treated and, and uh, everything that it's hard for him to step back from from his usual talking points. Really, he. When I talk with him, he's very focused on repeating the same thing over and over again, outlining the the, the points of his case, defending himself, um, talking about the shortcomings of the Japanese justice system, and then, of course, uh, bemoaning the uh, lowly state of the alliance after you know that it's fallen into after his uh, arrest and departure. Will we be hearing more from him, or do you expect him to just fade away? I don't know. That's a very good question. I think he is part of his strategy relies on him uh, staying in the mix a bit. You know, the French prosecutors, because he's now uh, facing more investigations in France where the uh, kind of his legal battles are now starting to heat up in France as well. Uh, French prosecutors visited him uh, recently in Lebanon and then conjunction with that, he's been on a bit of a media uh, offensive to try to uh, tell his side of the story and and put his spin on this. So he is, you know, he's a very media savvy man. He's great at communicating and he's always relied on communicating with the media to get his message out. So I can't see him uh, dropping that anytime soon as long as he has something to say. And um, I can imagine him being in the mix. These legal problems aren't going to go away overnight. And the indictments from Japan are are going to be lingering there until either he, they get him back to face trial or eventually he passes away. So uh, this problem will be chasing him uh, for many, many years. When we talk about Carlos Ghosn's pay, there's also the subtext of him having a very unique ability to lead three automakers. But sooner or later, Ghosn was going to retire. In your view, does the Alliance need a superstar executive like Ghosn to be sustained? I don't think it needs a superstar executive. I think it simply needs a competent executive. Um, and maybe a, a technical, a technocrat executive is good enough too. Um, if you have a superstar executive with the, all the charisma that go, that goes along with it, I think that's always helpful, but not necessarily, not necessarily necessary. Um, I think the biggest problem with, with Gone was that it was hard for him to let go of the alliance. And it was difficult, maybe for the personal reasons. Maybe he uh, it was hard for him to give up power. Maybe it was hard for him to give up the the salary and the pay that came with it. But also, it was difficult, I think, for him to give up uh, control of the alliance because he didn't see a clear successor. And that's maybe because there wasn't somebody who could um, take the reins from him or wasn't up to the task. But you could also say that was a shortcoming of Gong for not having properly cultivated that kind of talent uh, to fill in for him, knowing that one day he would have to step down. So that was, as one of our um, our sources in, in the book put it, that was his kryptonite, that he was never really able to uh, fully cultivate somebody who could step in to fill in after him. 
uh, and all the potential successors seem to eventually fade away or leave the company. Um, so, uh, you know, Carlos Tavares is a classic example of uh, somebody who was forced out, somebody who was a kind of heir apparent, but was forced out. Now he's running his own company and you could argue maybe he's his own superstar, uh, uh, executive and doing what Carlos Ghosn, uh, was trying all along, uh, tying up this huge, massive, uh, cross-border, uh, it, you know, automotive empire with, with in Stellantis. Yeah, and in the case of Tavares, of course, somebody who saw that it was not apparent that he was going to be stepping up into Gone's role anytime soon, and in fact went rather public with his own comments about that. Let's talk a little bit about what you've learned about Carlos Ghosn. Uh, you, you mentioned before the amount of time that you have spent covering him, but what did you learn about him in the course of writing this book? Well, it, what became apparent was how much time he spent fixated on his salary um, over the course of, the, from 2010 right up till the end. There was a lot of discussion going in on it, not just with Gohn, but apparently Gohn's, uh, you know, his top lieutenants, uh, in the executive suite that were involved with executive pay and compensation. There was a lot and a lot of back and forth about how to pay Gohn. Uh, there was, uh, especially to, uh, his retirement package. There's comp, now the part of the legal question is, is that really a retirement package that they were um, trying to arrange to pay him for services in retirement, such as non-competition or a, or a kind of an advisory fee? Or was that really just window dressing to cover over a payback for that shortfall in his salary, the salary cut that he took? And that figuring out how to pay Gohn in a way that would not be disclosed publicly uh, consumed enormous amounts of time and energy <laughs> within that that upper echelon of the CEO office of people trying and finagling different ways, consulting with countless lawyers, trying to figure out different ways to pay him uh, legally in a way that wouldn't be disclosed. We'll hear more from Automotive News Asia editor Hans Grimel after this. As online experiences exploded this past year, it was clear dealers needed an approach that kept them in business for the long term. Chris Walsh, Casey Edwards, and Dave Bates, Top Reynolds executives, sat down to discuss today's digital retailing landscape. Here's an excerpt from that roundtable discussion. So what are dealers trying to do to get this fully online and online to in-store experience? I mean, that's a great question, and honestly, it's, a, it's kind of a hard one to answer because retailers are kind of defining and using digital retailing differently. You know, to some dealers, it's selling a car. To other, it's sales and F&I, and they, they tend to be approaching it in chunks versus, you know, kind of a holistic, holistic approach, and then you end up just focusing on one or two things when you need to focus on, you know, more of a big picture. Digital retailing is dealership operations, period. Reynolds' Retail Anywhere approach focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this big-picture, holistic approach, visit reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. So you're not the judge, but I'm going to ask you to deliver a verdict. 
Is he a lawbreaker or is he the target of a conspiracy? Well, that's the question. And I don't have a good answer for that. And I'm afraid in the book, uh, we don't have an answer for that either because the, the, the trials not, has never been, has never happened. It may never will happen. And we don't have access to all the facts. We'll never, there's a lot of information that will probably only come out in court. We have the, the Greg Kelly trial that's going on currently in, um, in Tokyo. But that only tells us Greg Kelly's involvement, doesn't tell us anything. It gives us insight into to Gohn's involvement and Gohn's story, but it doesn't really, it's not Gohn's defense, it's uh, Greg Kelly's defense. So that also gives us kind of an incomplete picture. Finally, what we're talking about here with the compensation is only two of the four uh, indictments. There are two more indictments that are arguably more serious because they are breach of trust indictments, and those talk about diverting um, uh, Nissan funds for personal gain. And um, those the the those are even more nebulous because the the, um, the evidence and the arguments behind those cases is even more sealed. That, that's not even in the, as little of that is in the public domain at this point. So again, that's a case where it's a kind of a he said, she said at this moment, prosecutors here are very tight lipped with their information. They share very, very little. And what comes out is through leaks that are maybe a suspect uh, uh, veracity. So it really boils down to a he said, she said in those cases. And it's, hard for an outsider like myself to make it ruling. Fair enough. You mentioned his legacy. You mentioned Carlos Ghosn working on his legacy, like ensuring that his legacy is a positive one ultimately. What's your opinion of Carlos Ghosn's legacy? What will it be? Well, there's a couple items to consider there. One is the Nissan revival. One is the um, building up of the alliance not only um, between Nissan and Renault, but also bringing in um, Mitsubishi and then some of the other kind of satellite players like Autovaz or at the time Daimler um, into what was at, the, at its pinnacle, the world's biggest auto group. I mean, by volume, they were selling uh, top of the world at the, at the time, you know, talking 2017 era. And, those are remarkable achievements by any stretch of the imagination, and they can't be taken away from Gaul. He was also a visionary, you could argue, in terms of electric vehicles and autonomous driving. He was one of the first uh, executives, really, to get on that bandwagon and see potential about it and talk up those those technologies um, when the rest of the, the industry was kind of laughing off EVs. And when autonomous driving was, even in its rudimentary state, was only kind of used at the top end, you know, Mercedes-Benz type vehicles, he was talking about bringing it out in lowly old Nissan, you know, the mass market Nissans. So he was a visionary in that sense, too. Um, now, of course, after his arrest, uh, a lot of that legacy is being is falling under attack as well. Partly because of his of the way that Nissan has kind of imploded, and the blame that's being pushed put on his push to uh, basically expand at any cost, it was as how his critics would put it now, 
as soon as he was arrested and and um, drummed out of the industry, all of his successors at the uh, alliance companies, and this goes for all three, uh, Renault, Nissan, and Mitsubishi, did an about-face on his um, expansion plans, on his sales and his ambitious sales goals and whatnot. And instead of uh, expanding, they were basically trying to contract and become small but profitable and manageable, kind of a sustained sales, sustained profitability goal instead of rapid expansion. And that was a kind of a repudiation of everything that Gones stood for, which was bigger sales, bigger scale, uh, bigger consolidation. Uh, so that was also kind of a, you see an unraveling of his, his, uh, his later, this business strategy of his later years. And then of course is the ultimate, um, you know, red card, which is the fact that he was, uh, <laughs> arrested, indicted four times. Uh, thrown in jail, um, then in, rather than face justice and try to get uh, talk about it in trial, he had himself packed into a box and escaped, uh, you know, shipped out of Japan, smuggled out of Japan, essentially, and is now living as an international fugitive. And to most people or many people in Japan, that's just proof that he was guilty all along, that, well, he he had to escape because he knew he'd be found guilty if he ever to stand for trial. Gone's answer to that, of course, would be, yeah, of course I was going to be found guilty in trial. Mm-hmm. We have a 99% conviction rate here. It's a foregone conclusion that anybody who goes to trial, whether they're innocent or not, is going to be found guilty. So it's an unjust system. And then you have that tension playing out. It's a fascinating story. It is well told in the book Collision Course, Carlos Gone in the Culture Wars that upended an auto empire. Hans Grimel, and William Sposato, the authors. And Hans, we are lucky to have you on our team explaining all of this. And we're lucky to have an author on the team as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. We reached Hans Grimel in Tokyo. And that's Daily Drive for Tuesday, June 8th. For breaking news, go to autonews.com. And for a library of more than 350 interviews, go to autonews.com slash daily drive. We'll be back Wednesday. <laughs>